everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Bourbon Showdown podcast. My name is Jesse Jones, and on the program today, we have Mr. William Shragus. He is the Chief Sales Officer of Barrel Bourbon. He is the Chief Product Innovation Officer of Barrel Bourbon. What does all that mean? What do all of those titles mean? It means he's damn good at his job. That's what that means. And he's on the program today to walk us through how he got started in whiskey, how Barrel Bourbon got started, how they have come as far as they have in such a short period of time. He was great to talk to. He's He likes what he does. And, 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 and that's what I like. I love finding people that are good at what they do, have a passion for what they do, and it just comes through in the conversation. So we want to thank him for being on the program. He really was just so good to talk to, and we thank him for his time. We're not going to spend much time up top today, guys. We've got a lot to get to. Him and I sit down. We talk about how he got started. We talk about his time in New York. We talk about how Barrel got started, and, and really, that's what we're here for. So let's get to it, shall we? I want to thank Will Jones for providing the music. I want to ask you to go hit subscribe on Apple. Go hit like on Instagram. Do all of the things we ask you to do. But for right now, we're going to get this thing started. It is the Bourbon Showdown podcast. It is William Shragus. It is Barrel Bourbon. It's a damn good episode, you guys. So sit back, pour yourself some Barrel Bourbon, and listen to the conversation I have with Mr. William Shragus. Do yourself a favor. Go get yourself a bottle, and let's start the show. Welcome. Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, man, we're so excited to talk to you guys. I've got Will Shragus, the Chief Product Innovative Officer from Barrel Bourbon. Good Lord, that's got to look good on a business card if people still use business cards. Uh, it's funny. Uh, I actually just got a promotion a couple weeks ago, and so I haven't seen the business card yet, but I am very, I can't wait to send it to my mom. Dude, that is an awesome title right there. Congratulations Thank on the promotion. Thank you. Cheers to that. Cheers. Man, I've been looking forward to talking to you guys for so long. Uh, Barrel, I feel, has been one of those brands that just like, it, it, it jumped into the public uh, awareness space like like you guys didn't build slowly and then one day you hear of you it's like boom barrel award winnings uh, san francisco double gold like like you guys just came out of the gate swinging yeah it's funny i you know barrel was founded in 2013 by joe beatrice right and uh he tells the story a lot. I was actually the second person. I was a buyer for a liquor store called Zaki's in New York that bought barrel for the store. Um, and it, the way that he tells the story is he spent all this time making sure the packaging was right, doing, making sure that the first blend was really great. And, uh, he decided he wanted to start at the top and he pulled samples and he made appointments with some of the most famous whiskey shops in New York and New Jersey and Connecticut where he launched the brand. And that was Astor wine, Zachy's where I was, Park Ave, a uh, couple other ones in Connecticut. And he just made these appointments and all of us started tasting the whiskey and saying like, this is great, absolutely. And he thought, oh, this is going to be easy. Right. What, uh, you know, no one really tells you is that the best shops have critical thinkers and engaged consumers. And so you get to only care about the quality of your, your product, of your whiskey and your packaging and your message. It's the 
blocking and tackling and the grind of sales in the less sophisticated shops around the, around the country or around the markets that actually are the, the most work and involve the most industry expertise. I feel like uh, in my six or so years with Barrel, I've learned so much about whiskey, but what I've learned the most about is like navigating bureaucracy and like what loopholes are really loopholes and uh, distribution management and shipping management and all of the things that are not particularly unique to the whiskey industry, but have their own twists when you're talking about a three-tier system and 50 different states with their own alcohol laws. Man, that is super interesting. Like I can, like, so with, like, Aster was my place. I, I, mm-hmm. I Zachy's was also really good, but Aster is where we would go. Uh, and that makes perfect sense because the people that are there, you, they're almost connoisseurs. Like they, they know what they're talking about. Right. So what, what, I would think it would be harder to sell Well, then again, your product's really good. So what would the difference be? Uh, uh, you sell to Aster, they're like, oh my goodness, this is phenomenal, we'll take it. And then you sell to uh, uh, maybe not a city setting, uh, maybe a control state setting. What, how, how much harder is the sell for them? So it's, it's not so much easier or harder, but it's very different. And I think a lot of it is learning to be respectful of everyone who is good at their job and what they're trying to do with the things that they're in control of. So Aster is a great example. The spirits buyer at Aster's name is Nima, and he has been there for a long time. And he knows more about brands and quality distillate than pretty much anyone that works for any brand because he deals with all of us and he's really good at his job. And he's, he has a huge budget. He's been doing it for a long time. And so when you're presenting to Nima, it is, this is what we're trying to do. This is the way we're telling our story. This is what it tastes like. Does it fit into what you're trying to do with your curated store? And Nima's answer is going to depend on what he wants to do with his store and, and how forthcoming about exact, the price point, the target market, availability, all of those things. And he'll ask questions that are more pointed, like, you know, what's the total availability of this or, uh, it, it is, is the pricing going to break to be lower at a certain quantity? There'll be almost more business questions with him because you don't have to, he'll, he'll have researched the brand. Um, oh, it, that's awesome. He won't have made a meeting with you if he wasn't interested. Right. Uh, you're dealing with a pro. A place like North Carolina, uh, every board has their own person. As a control state, North Carolina makes decisions uh, at the county level, not at the state level. Right. Um, and so the boards will usually respond to consumers asking for things for special orders. Yes. The state will respond to, is this a good business decision for the state? So when you're presenting to the state, yes, you want to make a presentation based on the history of your brand and what you're trying to do and your price point and your competitive set. But you also, in order to, to really like get approval quickly or get excitement at the state level, it's about what are the sales like in Michigan, which is also a control state, or what right. are the sales like in Pennsylvania, or what are the sales like on the borders with other states, or what are the prices at non-state controlled stores near the borders? And so to go in and say, here's, here's some objective data about why this particular brand or this particular whiskey from this brand is gonna be successful in this cluster of stores in North Carolina, that's the type of sales presentation you wanna make to them. Finally, there's like going to a restaurant or a a bar where it's only one bottle. And so it's really like, do do you like this? There's, you don't have to talk about the business side of it at all because it's like, do you want this to be on the shelf in your bar? Right. 
uh, unless you're an insanely popular brand. If, if you're, uh, I don't know, Absolute launching their new flavor and you, and you want to, it's, do you like it? But it's also like, this is all the branding that's going into this new flavor launching. And these are the cocktails people are going to ask for. You've um, got brand recognition built in. And I, I would say Barrel's at this really cool point now where we do have brand recognition, but I think so. we have brand recognition in the place where, where we signal a good whiskey selection. We're one of maybe seven to 10 brands right now, which means like this is not obscure, but you wouldn't, it wouldn't be on the biggest distributor in the States initial recommendation list unless we were running a program with them. Uh, but right. it will signal to people who come in that you care about your whiskey selection. Oh, most, I, I, I would agree with that. Uh, you guys, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, at a state level for a control state like North Carolina, they also, everything you just said drives towards how long will this stay on our shelf? Is mm -hmm. it something that you can guarantee us is going to come in the door and come out the door? Or is it something that we have to be prepared to sit, sit on top of for six months while people figure out if they want it or not? Um, and also, how will it move velocity-wise against things at its price point? I think what right. is special about the Barrel Craft Spirits portfolio and one uh, thing that Joe and I get into really heated conversations about a lot is that we have probably the most complicated whiskey portfolio in the country, but we have an extremely simple price model where everything we make falls into one of four prices. And so at any given moment with all of our single barrels and private releases, we might have 200 different labels available around the country, but they're all in the same bottle. They all look recognizable and they're all one of four prices. So for a state like North Carolina, uh, at, at the very least, it sort of swaps in and out on the, on the shelf as like, it's the same price. And so right. they right. have some data about the price points. Um, but we also are really dedicated to over delivering at those price points. And so the conversation is, for the BCS line, which is $250 on the bottle, this has to be the best thing we can possibly make. It's $250 on the shelf. Uh, for something like a batch of bourbon, which is $84.99 on the shelf, we need to make sure that we are the best $84.99 bottle of bourbon on the shelf. The reason that we don't have a $28 whiskey is we don't feel like we can make a $28 whiskey as well as other $28 whiskey producers can. But we feel like we can make an $84 whiskey or an $85 whiskey as well or better than anyone else. And so a place like North Carolina, they're not going to expect the $85 bottle to be at the volume of the $28 bottle, but is your $85 bottle going to be the one that people grab off the shelves? Um, and that's where all the work comes in for us, the sort of soft sales work of making sure that the brand is recognizable, that people try it, coming on these shows, talking about the story, uh, making sure that when people do taste it, they like it, they recommend it to each other, they finish the bottle, they buy another bottle. Um, totally. Uh, and and I, I always like to... Uh, similar, only on a much smaller scale before I, a lot of the ways we find people for the show are either someone writes us and is like, oh my God, you've got to try this. Or we, a producer will bring something to me and we'll all sit down and try it. And, and, and Barrel was one of those where, good Lord, it was just so damn good. Uh, somebody brought it over and we sat down and every one of us were just like, how I want to know how. So I, I reached out immediately and was like, this is absolutely delicious. Uh, can, would you guys like to, to talk? Because uh, the story, I, I love the story and I love what goes into each bottle. So that's really uh, uh, what I'm hoping we can get to today is, is just 
you guys own the fact that you are scouring the country for the best whiskeys in the world, country, world, whatever, to blend into this. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So everything you're saying is right, uh, but with sort of one caveat, which is we're not looking for distillery partners or production partners that are making the best whiskey capital W finished product. Right. We are looking for people that produce ingredients the way that we want to use them for our blends. And That's so awesome. the big distinction between uh, barrel craft spirits, and we really refer to ourselves as like a merchant bottler right now. Um, right. And what other people might call a non-distiller producer or an independent bottler, which are slightly different models, but related to each other is that we are not interested in people buying our whiskey based on the provenance of the place that it was distilled. We are interested in people buying our whiskey based on the expertise that we bring to sourcing those ingredients and putting them together in the right way. And so I, th I think at this point we're up to like 70 something different distillery partners that we work with. And some of them are like, the barrels are great. They, and those barrels go into our single barrel program. Those barrels become bases of blends, but sometimes it's this particular distillery produces barrels that have a really creamy corny note at five years old. And we love that note in our whiskeys along with other stuff. So we make sure to source that age from that distillery to use along with other things, not because it's the best bourbon, but because it brings that and no one else is bringing that to a blend. Uh, and so I think what made, what first set Joe apart from other whiskey producers in America was he was really upfront about the fact that he was doing that and he was willing to declassify older bourbons or bourbons from more famous distilleries or states that were more sort of desirable in their state of distillation into younger bourbons or bourbons from uh, more well-known uh, contract distilleries or, th or things that weren't as sexy on the packaging because right, the, right. Co the combination of the two was greater than the sums of its part, the sum of its parts and more interesting than anything that could have come out of any one distillery. I, I love it. And it, it, it's such a balanced hand and just the, the sheer science that has to science and time that has to go into each bottle you guys produce. Uh, uh, let's start at the beginning. How did Joe know that that's what he wanted to do? What was he doing before that? Who was, <laughs> So yeah, so Joe was in, Joe owned a company called Blue Dingo that did, and you know, Joe is like my boss, but at this point, like a life mentor and or like a uh, pseudo dad to me. And I still have no idea what the hell Blue Dingo did because the way that he <laughs> describes it, uh, I know the projects that he worked on, but it seems like he was a one-stop shop for fixing your problems if you didn't understand the internet that seems to be what Blue Indigno was. And so it was a marketing company, but it also was a like help bring you into the digital age company. I got you. What was the time frame for this? Uh, I don't even know the whole time late frame. Late 90s, it, but early 2000s. Yeah, late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. And uh, there was such a market for that at that time because everybody needed to make the transition from basically all print to all internet all and, web and it's and, like how do you talk about alcohol on the internet with the yeah. you know all, all of those things and joe was in the middle of that but on the branding side so mm -hmm. he knew a lot of people in the liquor industry uh and he was always a like a fan of whiskeys and and involved in the like fun part of just being on trips and and knowing people but uh 
in the like just after 2010 or so, the, the company was launched in 2013, but just before that, uh, Joe, I think, was, was several years ahead of the curve in identifying that the American whiskey category was not about brand allegiance as much as the major players thought it was. It was about uh, delivering on your promises and giving some someone someplace exciting but safe to go as they are getting into the category. And so... He said, I'm going to launch a brand and there's going to be no consistency. It's going to be something new every time you go into the store. And I'm going to do everything at cask strength because that's the way that I like to drink it. And I don't want to say nobody because I wasn't around, but uh, the story I've heard is that all of the common wisdom didn't take him seriously. Right, uh, right. And like, now you never work. Now you fast forward eight years and single barrels are the fastest growing part of the, of the bourbon industry for us, but also for everyone. And there's more cast strength. There's when we, when we launched barrel, I wasn't even there when barrel was launched. Uh, I think it was like the fourth or fifth readily available cask strength, American whiskey. Like they just, they just didn't really bookers. That was kind of it. Right. Um, right. There's the, the Buffalo trace antique collection, but it was already at the point where that was allocated that it wasn't available at the time. And, right. uh, and now everyone has a, a cast strength offering. And, and similarly, everyone has all these special releases. Uh, as our company has evolved, we've put out some whiskeys that are always available. We put out Dovetail, we've put out the Infinite Barrel Project, we've put out Armida. Uh, but everything we do still rests on these two foundations, which are the only conversation is what's the best thing we can make. It's not, is it exactly the same? So if we want to improve upon, improve upon something upon release, it'll be improved upon. And the second is that every whiskey or rum we've ever put out has been cask strength and it'll continue to be that way. And uh, everything else is kind of on the table in terms of innovation discussions. That's awesome. So he saw this, I don't want to call it a niche, but he saw what he, he saw something, opening up and he was like i i want to be a part of this i think i could bring something to the table and and he did he quit or did he did he how did he originate it like did he leave blue dingo and and start up barrel or or was it sort of like uh 50 50 for a while no he i blue dingo had finished before and i think that the idea was brooding um i think it sort of started with him being into home brewing and like thinking about that as a business and then like almost any merchant bottler, non-distiller producer, independent bottler. Originally, the idea was to eventually have a distillery. And what has happened with Barrel is the, the brand is successful. The company is successful. We're really happy about what we do. And we feel like we're really good at what we do. And at any moment where the opportunity to invest in a gigantic distillery has come up, we've looked at it and decided instead to invest in lots of old barrels of whiskey. And that's what people expect from us. So at this point, we're just not interested in being distillers anymore. We've built our entire team and our infrastructure around being blenders, and we just want to keep doing that. I love that, though, because that is so unique to the market right now. Like, like you find yourself in singular company. You know what I mean? Like, there's mm -hmm. not a lot of people doing what you're doing, and, and even fewer doing it as well as you guys are. So you've kind of gotten to corner the market all because other people uh, don't want to and you're and you you own it and you're great at it yeah i appreciate you saying that and i think that uh people in america who like spirits are so much more adventurous and so much smarter than large companies give them credit for agreed and so to to just be up up front or forthcoming about like what your identity and what you're trying to do is 
people ap- intrinsically appreciate appreciate that and much more than hiding it yeah uh, i think that like our conversation there's always a bit of branding that goes into decisions about whiskeys but our conversation is what's the best way to tell the real story not what story is going to help sell the product right uh there are my brother-in-law he this is the best example of what we're talking about that i can think of he was he calls me up and he's 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 not bragging but you know when you get a good bottle and you're proud of it mm-hmm. and and like he's like i got this and it's from here and it's from that and it's this and i'm like look on, look look on the back of it just take a breath look at the back of it look at the very bottom of it what's it say mm-hmm. made here where's the distillery it's it's here so you were sold like, like, and there's no worse feeling than when you've been sold on something that is incorrect. Right. Like when you're told that it's this, you get it home, you're bragging about it. And then, Oh, it, it's just another thing. And you guys are doing the opposite of that. You're so proud of what you're producing that you let it scream. You, you, you come into it head first and let them know that this is going to be something that you're not going to get anywhere else. And it's going to be, it's going to be amazing. Right. And also if you're honest and someone likes it, then they like you. True. And if you're misleading and someone likes it, then they're not liking you. They're liking the story that you made up about yourself and who knows if that will be true forever or what pivots you'll have to make to continue to be producing that way. And, uh, for us, it's like, you know, it's funny, I, I did not vote for him, but I, I liked listening to Gary Johnson speak when he was running for president, however many years ago. And one of the things he right. said was, uh, I don't like, then I never have to remember what I said. And that kind of stuck with me as a like young person in the whiskey industry that like, thank God, I just get to taste our products and like tell people <laughs> how I feel about them. It makes it so much more fun. Well, but you're absolutely right. That is how you get an audience on board with you. Uh, I, I've been doing comedy for so long that one of the first things you learn is you can't force yourself to be that comic that you grew up watching or your favorite in the industry right now. Everybody's voice is different. And if you don't embrace your own voice, then eventually you're going to run out of stuff to say in the voice that's not true to who you are. Mm-hmm. So you'll see a lot of guys get up there and maybe it's just hardcore profanity or it's just really dark or it's just all these things that then they're not. Mm-hmm. And that's not their personality. That's just the the niche they're trying to fill. Well, in a year, they don't have anything to say because they've not built a brand based off something they actually believe in. And and now they're almost writing the character of themselves and and it, they can get to a really dark place i've seen people have like not breakdowns but pretty damn close to breakdowns definitely mm-hmm. drinking problems because now you're living essentially this lie mm-hmm. and you're going out there and you're promoting that lie every night that you hit the stage and the crowd starts to expect that lie so now you're in a box and you can't ever be yourself because they want joey wacky pants right or people see you out and you have to be wacky pants oh my oh my god uh yeah, that that's I that's the worst when somebody uh, just expects immediately that thing. Like at, at least if somebody recognizes you from Barrel, the worst thing you're gonna have to do is share a drink with them. Yeah, they're, they're gonna leave happy. They, <laughs> they see you on the street corner in New York. They're either quoting so if if you're good. If you weren't good, they're just gonna tell you they're not gonna acknowledge you at all. That's the New York way. You keep expecting people to know who you are, and they just walk right by. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Uh since I know you like little anecdotes, uh, (laughs) 
obviously in the past year or so it hasn't been a reality but there's a circuit of the whiskey shows of whiskey live whiskey fest right right uh whiskey in winter there there's like maybe 10 or so around the country that really attract uh people who have a national footprint in their job rather than regional footprints right and so you get to know everyone really well because you see them once every two months and you're like you know you're next to the same person a couple times and and uh nobody drinks whiskey when they go out after them. It's like, it's always wine or beer. And in fact, uh, one of the nicest things you can do for someone else in the industry at a whiskey show is to bring, like, I always like to bring like cornitas or like mini Heineken bottles or something to the show because they're usually like four and a half hours long or so. And they're jovial, but you can't be drinking your own product for four and a half hours. You can't drink whiskey for four and a half hours and represent yourself well. And in fact, no. other people in the industry will, will judge you harshly as they should if you're you know, getting hammered at, your, at a show. Yeah. Uh, but it is really nice to, to be able to have a drink with people you know in the industry, but also with consumers who are coming and asking and sort of have like a little bottle of beer. Uh, a man named uh, Spike McClure who worked for Diageo in New York taught me this, that like, the safest thing at a whiskey show is to be holding a small bottle of like 4% beer because it'll keep you from accidentally consuming things. Uh, but it feels like you're part of it. And a couple times I've like brought that and I've given them to the person next to me and it's like, thank you. We're best friends now. Thank you so much for this. <laughs> oh man. I hadn't even thought of that. So when you're on these shows, of course you're on it, it, very similar to comedy. Like you you've got to be on point the entire time you're there and you are expected to drink. So, so yeah. Although I think the industry has changed in a way that you're not expected to anymore. And uh, right. for a long time, again, this year is really an outlier, but the, I would say the most underappreciated job besides bottling line, which is, I don't, the, the attention to detail of someone who is good and works full time on a bottling line is outrageous to me. It's like, imagine trying to get a photocopier to actually work. 10 hours right. a day. Right. Um, besides that, the four higher, they call people, people refer to them as tasting models, but it's really like part-time or for hire brand ambassadors, uh, that look the part, get a script before and memorize it and stand and talk to people for four and a half hours in a genuine way. And mm -hmm. because, because they're not salaried employees, like they don't take breaks the way that someone like when, when I go to those shows, I'll have someone with me, either people from the sales team or someone from our distributor and I'll be behind the table for half of it, but I'll be working the room for the other half of it. Right. Uh, the stamina that it takes to smile and represent someone else's product, um, both the people that do it for all sorts of other brands, but then also the regional people and the local people that do in-store tastings all day. Uh, I think about our sales team and the amount of leash that I have talking to you where I get to talk about myself. I talk, I've been with the companies so the stories or stories that I was part of. And right. then I think about like Eva in the Northeast and Stephanie in Colorado and Jessica in Texas and Ned in Kentucky and Lindsay in New Jersey, like Ned and Lindsay started in October and, they field questions about things that happened six years before they were with the company and they have to be really genuine about it. And it's not about them. And it's just right, like, right. it's so impressive. Um, acting. Yeah. It's like acting and just stamina. Uh, right. well to those people that are on the ground, I, you, you feel bad for them sometimes because 
a lot of consumers don't necessarily respect free. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So if you're getting a free tasting, people aren't always as polite as they should be with the thing that they're getting. Right. Does that make sense? Like I've, I've seen people be overly critical of something that was given to them for free at one of those tastings just because they're, they probably suck in real life. You, you know what I mean? Like, like mm -hmm. nasty people can be nasty sometimes and you just feel bad for the poor guy or girl that's sitting there. Like it's, it's really good. I don't, I'm sorry that you're not liking it. I, I think it's amazing. And they're just, well, you know, and you just, you feel for them because they're there for another three and a half hours. Right. But also uh, you get to a point in any specific job with a whiskey company where if you're doing that and someone says, what's the smoothest whiskey, you feel comfortable enough responding with, that doesn't actually mean that much to me. Tell me about what other, what you like. And I smooth might, does that mean something that's easy for you to drink? Is it sweet? Is it oaky? But when you're new with a brand or when you don't actually work for the brand, you can't push back on a question like that. And so right. it's just, it's just harder. Um, so how do they build that grit? Just it, time? Yeah. Um, and you do it a lot. And uh, I think the, the left turn that happened this year is it's doing it via zoom now. So it's like right. answering those questions, but also paying attention to the lighting in your room and yeah. uh, making the sure sound. like, yeah. Uh, it, well, it's the same principles. Distraction is the biggest uh, hurdle that you have. Anything that happens that you're not planning on that immediately takes the viewer, the listener out of your conversation and puts them into what was that? Mm -hmm. that a dog barking and then boom it takes longer to get them back in tune to what you're saying what you're saying you know right so the company is born and mm -hmm. and when did you come on board with with barrel uh so i i was the first full-time employee of barrel so trip who is our chief whiskey scientist uh beat me to the company as a consultant but i okay. beat him as a w2 nice um and that was june 6th 2016. So almost five years ago. Uh, but I had been consulting for about a year before that. Um, so let's say to that mid 2015 was when I sort of started working with Joe. And when you say consulting, you were consulting, like, like how, what, what does that mean from a whiskey perspective? Um, so at the time I was working for a company that's now called Spiribom who imports rum JM and rum Clement. And at the time rum Demoiseau, chairman's reserve. Uh, and so I was not helping Joe with any direct sales and I wasn't helping him with any distribution management, but I was, uh, talking to him on sort of a project basis about product development. Um, and then starting in about January of that year, I started helping him also with some sales in New York. And then, uh, June of 2016 is when I became a full-time employee and I was the point of contact for our distributors that we were with. And that was when Barrel sort of went from like six states to being a, a semi-national brand. And then I'd say 2018 or so is when we got to the point where, though there's a couple of states like Wisconsin that we're not in, uh, right. for all intent and purpose, we are a national brand now. If you live in, oh, in America, we can get a bottle to you. Beautiful. So, so before you were consulting, uh, let's talk about you for a minute. Where did you come from? Like, what did you always know you wanted to work in whiskey or what were, what were your goals uh, when you were going to school? Like what were your long-term aspirations? Um, so I was an American studies major in undergrad, which is a hilariously vague. It's almost uh, like saying you were an art major. Yeah. It's like it, it you could have been, but it's right. like an art right. major with no definition. Um, and, <laughs> uh, 
I had no idea what I wanted to do career-wise, but I, uh, I was interested in home brewing and I was always interested in cooking. And I, um, on sort of on a whim or like as a just hoped it would work, sent uh, my resume and a bunch of letters to some of the micro distilleries in New York uh, who had just sort of won that battle to be able to distill things in New York legally. Right. Um, and asked for internships the summer between my junior and senior year of college. And uh, a distillery that I'm not going to mention now because there's a question that you asked me pre- to prepare for that I want to mention the person and I want to do the reveal then. But they uh, it, they basically said like our yield and statistics are all handwritten. And if you digitize our records, we will let you be our intern for the summer. And so... Beautiful. Uh, I graduated college with a, oh, so in the middle of that, then someone left and I wound up being one of the only people who was available on Sundays who kind of knew how to operate the distillery. And so I was like a junior distiller for like a month too. Oh, that's um, awesome. And so I, I graduated college with a resume that had elite, like I was legally trained to use stills, which right. the, wow. at that point there weren't very many people that did that. Uh, and I ended up going to the Culinary Institute of America to study wine for a year. Um, and so I got my graduate degree in food biz, whatever that degree is technically. Um, and I started working as a sommelier in New York, but I really was not good at the skill of fine dining service. I was just really, I, I had bartended all through college and I, the being able to be sat, I'm better at sassy than I am at formal. Um, I got you. And, uh, and so I just sort of dropped out of doing that. And that's how I wound up working at the liquor store Zaki's and, and they moved me back into spirits from wine, uh, and so I sort of found my way back into whiskey, but it, it, it all kind of started because I like sent a letter cause I thought it was cool that people were making whiskey legally in Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. You, sh- yeah, you showed that ambition. Yeah. Or just like, uh, sent a letter, you know? Well, I mean, that's the thing. Everybody has these great ideas, but until you pull the trigger on that thing that actually kicks it off, it's just that it's just an idea. It's just a thing you talk about at the pub with your friends. Mm-hmm. So then you're at Zaki's. So I'm at Zaki's and, and I meet Joe. And then in between when I met Joe and when I worked for Joe, I, uh, another really just right place, right time. And was really lucky. Uh, uh, I started for the, for Zaki's working with rum agricole, which is a really traditional style of rum from Martinique. Um, and we were one of the, the top accounts for that company. And then they needed new representation in New York. And I knew them because I was a buyer perfect. and, uh, Ben Jones, who is the the head of that company in America, uh, sort of offered me a job with no experience on the brand side, which I, I don't know why he did, but thank you, Ben. And uh, <laughs> and right after I started with them, my supervisor at the time uh, left to go work for Pernod Ricard. And so I wound up doing the East Coast in Texas like six months wow. into that job. Um, Trial by fire. Yeah, but it was great because it really prepared me. First of all, I learned a lot and it was a lot of fun. I got to travel, but it prepared me for my job with Joe because I had relationships in Texas already, which is the wonderful black hole for cast strength whiskey in America. Um, and I had sort of seen what different distributors did and, and how to work with them. Beautiful. So you kind of, uh, not evened out, but you kind of rounded out what he was already building up as a pretty uh, comprehensive arsenal uh, to, to go into the, the whiskey wars with. Yeah. I think that Joe put the brand together in a way that there was a clear message mm-hmm. and we pretty early on found a couple of distribution partners that got it. 
Right. We also had some distributors early on that didn't get it. And we have since had to switch distributors or we see now that the, there's a couple of states that are really strong markets for us that you wouldn't expect and a couple of states that should be and aren't. Um, and part of that has to do with like, uh, you get to a size where you need microphones and you either have working microphones or you don't have working microphones. And right. uh, in major populous states, you figure that out quickly. You know, if we have a problem in New York, we're going to fix it. If we have a problem in Texas, we're going to fix it. Uh, but then when you see the brand be 10 times bigger in, I don't know, uh, Oklahoma than it is in Nebraska, right, it's like, right. okay, this might not be about us. This might be about the microphone in that state. Um, and so it's like, who we have to find someone to work with that is like Oklahoma or, right, right. um, and that's a, that's a career path that, that being a distribution manager is like a thing that no one says they're going to do for the alcohol industry, but it's just so valuable within the industry. Well, and just the knowledge of every brand that you get when you do that. I've got a lot of friends that are, you know, distribution managers for a North Carolina's product, part of their territory and anybody you mention, Oh yeah, I know that guy. Yeah. Or I know that guy. It basically your job is the Rolodex of the of the whole of the whole damn industry. Right. But it's also like I know that guy or that woman and then I know what they do. I know why they're good at their job and I know what they need for me to do it. Right. Because right. if you just know the person, when that person leaves or gets promoted, you're in trouble. But if you know the person and the job they do, when that person leaves, you still can work with whoever Totally, totally. Um, you can you can roll that relationship over into the next person because you know what they need. Right. Or you know how to help them and them help you. Right. And you're easy to work with because you're giving someone what they need from you to do their job. Totally. So that I love the I love how this is shaping up. Like the picture that you're painting is you guys go into it, you know what you want to do, you've got a great idea of how you're gonna do it. Joe's building the team of people that aren't only good at it, but come with like multiple skill sets that he can utilize for this for this national rollout. Uh how did you start putting your blends together? What was the next step after all the pieces were in place to finalize the juice? So when I started uh barrel made batches of bourbon, which is our core. Like mm -hmm. what we do is we make, at this point, they're about 2,500 to 3,000 six pack blends and they have a number. So you have, I think barrel bourbon batch 27 was the one that we sent you and they're sequential, but they're different. So 27 recently sold out from us. So it's available on shelves. It's available at distributors, but our warehouse doesn't have any left. Okay. And we are now selling 28 to distributors. Uh, there's usually two available from us. There's the one that distributors have and the one that we have, and then everything else is sold out. Uh, right as I started also, we released barrel whiskey, which was a declassified out of bourbon because it used some used barrels to age it, right. uh, batch one, the whiskeys since have disappeared and been replaced instead by mm -hmm. dovetail and Armida and the infinite barrel project, uh, projects that we have that have names instead of just batch numbers. Um, when we started, there was so much work going into communicating the brand identity that right. the portfolio was pretty narrow. And also even because every batch is different, it's like turning the vintage on wine four times a year. It's a new, it's a new explanation. Why is this thing that is five years old, the same price as this, the last thing, which was nine years old? Why is the proof changed? Why does it taste different? All of those communications every four months, three, four months. Uh, That's as, crazy. And how do you answer that? Well, 
there are answers to it. And if you go to our website, uh, which is barrelbourbon.com, um, there's extensive information about all of our products and uh, all of our distributors have information and we have local representation in a lot of parts of the country now. Uh, but part of it is also building the framework. Once someone understands what our batch system is, it's very easy to fill them in on the new batch. Right. And so, I think your, your pricing helps there too, because it, it might not have all of the words they're used to seeing where they're used to seeing them, but, Oh, it's this, it, it's gotta be in the ballpark. Cause it's the same price I paid last time. Right. Um, and the label for all intended purposes is the same. It just has the details fit, fit in differently. Um, right. As the brand grew, as our recognition grew, as our distributors became more adept at passing on information and getting information from us, uh, we were able to experiment and, and innovate a little bit. Uh, first, a little bit into the rum category because we really loved these really pungent Caribbean rums. Um, and then into barrel finishing as that became a thing that, that we felt comfortable doing. A lot of that also had to do with us taking complete control of a space that was big enough to be doing projects like that in. Another right. one of the, I know you like the behind the scenes facts that aren't as I, sexy I sounding. I'm Another thing that makes barrel unique as a producer of whiskey that is not a gigantic distillery is that we completely control our blending and bottling production from a facility standpoint. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have to go into someone else's house to make blends or to, to barrel finish. And because of that, we are able to work on things for six months or a year before we bottle them. I love um, that. Like a mad scientist, you've just got your own lab laboratory. And we're able to do uh, bottling sequences that would be too complicated if you were giving them to someone else to execute. So on any given day, we might bottle 500 cases, but it might be across 12 different products. And if we were using a company that does bottling, because bottling lines are hundreds of thousands of dollars of investment, uh, we would never be able to say, here's 12 different labels that look very similar, but are actually different. And here's the 12 products that you need to put it in and they need to be different and you need to clean the line in between each one and they need to be palletized differently. We couldn't give that project to someone else. And so from strictly from a logistics point of view, we are more available to us in what we can execute than almost anyone else. Uh, and because of that, we are able to like free our minds in terms of what we want. If we can blend it, we can make it. Right, um, right. And uh, control it. And by controlling it, you don't have to spend all of that time in an operational nightmare. Uh, what we've learned in the past two years or so is our innovations, our experiments, our new products, they need to take one of two forms. They either need to be a singular thing that we can make a lot of at one time because a release for us does us no good in making people happy if there's only 600 cases of it. Because right. 600 cases across 46 states means not even every specs location in Texas, which you know, the biggest chain in Texas is going to get a full case, and that's going to just ca cause a problem. Right. Uh, so it either needs to be something like Dovetail that we can make 3,000 or 4,000 six-packs at a time, or it needs to be something that is very small production but comes as a project. So we'll do... We just recently did the what we call the, Z, the Z1 series of single-barrel bourbons, and that is single barrels that were selected out of the sets of barrels, I know this is a lot, that were used to blend batches 22 through 26, 
27. And so within the Z1 series of single barrels, there's everything from five to 11-year-old barrels, and there's Kentucky, Tennessee, and Indiana. But they were all selected, yeah, across maybe six months of our production. And so when we send people samples, we send them blind. We say like, this could be anywhere from five to 11 years old. It could be anywhere from 99 to 131 proof. It could be from any of these three states. It could be from, there's many distilleries represented here. you can have any of them you want, but you can't know what you're tasting until you you have to pick your favorite. And, and give some us people, honest feedback. Some people respond to us, that's not going to work for us. And then our response to them is either like, okay, well, we're going to go to other people first and then we'll give you a less a not blind set once other... And some people say yes. And some people pick a favorite, but they pick two and then we tell them what they are and they pick the one that they think will sell best in their store. Right. Um, See, that sounds that amazing. Product, yeah, that project only works for us though because we did it with ninety-six barrels. If we had done it with eight barrels, it would have right. wouldn't have been wouldn't have done anything for us. Um, and so, even though we have all of these innovations going on, we do it in pretty large chunks of organized projects now. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, we're able to roll out these seemingly extremely detail-oriented micro-releases. These one hundred and fifty case things, private releases, single barrels. Uh, but in a scale where we're able to talk to a lot of people at the same time about them. See, that part doesn't sound, that, that part sounds workable to me. The, 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 I, I still can't quite wrap my brain around. You, you want to start, like, I, I read something that was interesting to me. Uh, while you're researching uh, what you want to do to start your next project, you start with something you're thinking about. Like, mm-hmm. like, like once you get, once you figure out what you're going to blend everything else you said, I can like put my head into, in terms of just a workflow, an operational standpoint. But when you're starting, you've got so many things that could go into something. What, what is that? What, what, what are you thinking about when, when you start up a new idea for a product line? Yeah. So I'm sure someone from the sales team is going to listen to this and make fun of me because I speak in metaphor a lot, but, uh, no, no, I, I, I will understand metaphor better than I will. If you go, uh, well, 76 is this and 34 is that I, uh, I liken it a lot to like going to the beach or going to the park for the day where you've got a vision for the type of day you want to have but you probably don't know exactly what you're going to do at the beach or what you exactly going to do at the park. And that has to do with who you run into, what the weather's like, if you get hungry, if you get thirsty, all of those, who calls you, all that changes. And so we usually start. And when we talk about blending, I'm talking in this sense about the larger releases. So the batches of bourbon and dovetail and seagrass and Armida and infinite barrel. Right. We start with a set of barrels that we know we're going to use because we sourced them specifically for a project though we might not have known what project yet, or we've been sitting on them for however many years waiting for them to get to the point that we want to use them. And that's going to drive the skeleton that all of the other adjustments are made to enhance. And so there's, there's kind of three ways that we go about it. The first is, and this is, the vast majority of our projects we call contrast blending, which is when the driving force is a vatting. It's like 70 to 80% of the blend. Uh, and it's, it's a set of barrels that were chosen. They're similar to each other and everything else is about making that base better. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm with you. And, and that happens a lot, first of all, because we usually have a set of barrels we know we're going to use. We have some data about what the yields are going to be like. We can do some planning with it. 
Right. The second type of That's blend. Yeah, the second type of blend, which is rarer from us, although tends to be the blends that like win the most awards, uh, is what we call likeness blending, which is when Joe and and Trip and Nick, who's fully on the blending team now too, she started as our single barrel program manager and she's a machine in blending and she didn't force her way in, but it was very clear very early on that she was part of that team. Um, She's good at this and needs to be here. And uh, it's when they're identifying a trend in barrels that they really like, and they start picking barrels, not based on what the major thing about the barrel is, but based on the fact that they have that little thing that they like. And they try to get enough barrels together that have the little thing that they can make a blend of what otherwise would not have been a cohesive set that highlights the the small cool thing that they all have in common. Um, okay, okay. And that takes a little longer because it, it you can't really plan for that. But once you've started doing it, you just do it till you have enough, and then you can const- construct that. And we call that likeness blending. Um, and okay. we usually only do one likeness blend a year because it usually takes us like the whole year of collecting from okay. other stuff. Of course. Um, well, that makes more sense then. So you wake up, you know, you want to go to the Rye Beach. And then so while you're, go- while you're mapping out your day, you just sort of figure out what's going to go with you to the beach. And, or it's and- like, you know, you're going to the 95% Rye, Indiana Rye Beach. Right, right. Okay. But, but you don't know how cold the water's going to be. And who you're bringing with you. Yeah. Um, I, I like that. I like that metaphor much better than if you had just said the rest of it. I think I, the sales team should be happy. That made perfect sense. <laughs> uh, the third, which is by far the most labor intensive, is what we call five points blending, mm-hmm. which is, even though it's not always five points, it's like three to seven points blending. Um, that is when we construct sub blends to act certain ways to bring something to a final blend and then try to make a balance of those three or five or seven ingredients. And so, uh, for instance, the, the bourbon that you're tasting batch 27 or, uh, uh, Armida, which I believe you have as well. There Armida is a three points blend, but, uh, those are, are situations where we deliberately blend things out of balance so that we can think about what they're all doing to each other rather than just adding on to the base as we are making the final blend. And that is logistically complicated because it's, it's like doing six batches for one batch, but also it's like tank space complicated because you have to keep everything separate and you have to have five large tanks and you have to, you know, you can't just dump into every tank. So you have to dump and blend and move. And there's, there's a lot, usually what will end up happening is we will have, several projects going on at the same time and we'll be dumping barrels for one ingredient of what will be a future batch and also using some of them as contrast in the batch that we're working on at that time. Um, and then at the same time, sort of selecting single barrels out of it that are really in balance that might not work for either one. Good Lord. You guys have got to be the most organized people ever to keep all of that in track. <sighs> I wish, uh, Somebody I say has to be, we are, miles ahead organizationally of where we were six months ago or a year ago or three years ago or six years ago. But that has come because we're also miles ahead in terms of where our products are going and how many products we have. And uh, certain things that, that seem like we need to do them right now, we only had to, we developed in response to realizing there were bottlenecks that we didn't predict. Right. Um, 
and uh, the pivot. Yeah, um, and putting systems in place so it doesn't happen again. And that is the most frustrating and most rewarding part of the job in a lot of ways too. When you see stuff that you were as a company able to get out ahead of and it didn't cause a problem again. Just shows you know what you're talking about. Like as you guys have become a, a fine-tuned machine, you can anticipate those problems and, and pivot before they become problems. Right. It, the longer you're open, it's, it's like seeing any company, any small business in like their year one where they really should, if they have the, uh, if they have the money to do so, do what you're good at and, and bring in other people to help you with the parts that you're not good at. I see so many small businesses fail because say they, they're really good at making coats, but, but they don't know how to do payroll. They don't know how to do uh, right. the operational side of it. Don't do that. If you're really good at making coats, bring somebody in to help you with payroll. You, you, you right. know what I mean? But and that's I, not always possible because of the, the, the money involved. I think to Joe's credit, first of all, he, and I hope that he feels this way about me, but he's put an amazing, he's done an amazing job of putting a team of people that have very different skill sets together. But also his attitude from day one has been, what do we want to do? The challenge is figuring out how to do it, not what are we able to do and limiting ourselves to that. Perfect. That, that, um, yes. And that's, that's exactly how you have to be. None of it's not attainable. You just have to figure out how to attain it. Right. So we've been talking about this for so long. I, I, I'm dying to crack into some. Sure. If, if you want to drink some bourbon with me. Uh, we were talking before we started recording. Uh, you're in New York right now. Uh, I was in New York for about 15 years. I've heard mm -hmm. a siren in the background just once or <laughs> twice. And I, I tell you, man, I miss it. I miss it so much. Yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly different now than it was a year ago, but, uh, I'm, I grew up in New York. I'm a New Yorker at heart and I, I feel lucky that I, I still get to live here. And you, you said you, uh, you're, you're there and then you're also in Kentucky. Do you still ever go out West? Um, so at some point I hope travel for work will start again. And, uh, I work really closely with our distributor in California and with a lot of accounts on the ground there. And so I was probably out on the West coast almost once a month in 2019. Um, oh, wow. So uh, this has been a gigantic culture shock for you just being off the road. Oh yeah. It's, uh, I feel it, being home so much has been, it's the first time in years that I've, that I've, I've like actually had a place that I spend most of my time, which is, uh, and, and I hope it, I, it get, gets back to that. But my role has also changed a little bit this year. And so I probably will be on the road less, except I'll be in Kentucky in a production, in the production facility more often than I was before. Um, right. we've, we've backfilled a, a sales and representation team that's really strong. And so there's places that I used to have to go once a quarter that I probably won't go. I'll go once a year instead. Right, right. Well, I feel like that's the one thing this 2020 has given us is time to catch our breaths and uh, kind of kept catch up with some of the uh, higher the, the infrastructure that that we maybe don't always get to pay attention to when we're mm. going a million miles an hour every day. Yeah. So what would you like to start with? So we have uh, Bourbon 27, Armida, Rye 3, and Dovetail. Is that what you have? 
That is correct. So I think uh, for time's sake, because we did a lot of chatting, let's start with Bourbon 27. <laughs> let's All talk right. about Armida and Dovetail. Rye 3 I'd love to talk about, but Rye 3 is actually sold out, even though it's still on shelves. Um, and so uh, if we're going to cut one, I think that's the one to cut. And all three of the the other three whiskeys, there's so much to talk about that it, it might make sense to. Um, so yeah, let's start with Bourbon 27. All right, Bourbon 27. Now this is 115 proof. Um, and and this is labeled as a five year old, but there is as old as I want to say 15 year old barrels in this. Right. Um. Bourbon 27 is. There, there's a lot of ingredients in bourbon 27. Um, there's five-year-old bourbon from Kentucky and Tennessee and Indiana. Uh, there's five and eight and 10-year-old, I believe, weeded bourbon in it. There's also older Tennessee bourbon. There's some like nine and 10-year-old really tannic, heavy oak barrels. Uh, it is... As a sales team, when we're doing our initial tasting, we had this... I loved it because I'm like a, a nerd for metaphor stuff. But uh, we had this conversation about how a lot of our batches are this sort of like palette that feels very impressionistic where things are flowing into each other and you get the idea of it, but it, there's so much that it's hard to pinpoint. And this particular bourbon, Bourbon 27, is like photorealism. It's like you say white flowers and it's there. Or you say like fermented honey and it's there. It's like it's the the tasting note nerds dream bourbon um right everything's pronounced everything's pronounced like i smell it and it's like toasted cinnamon stick and it's like i can totally get that in this and not that i love really verbose tasting notes that much but i love when you say or think something and it's you get such an old fact olfactory experience on it right um well the nose is beautiful all right, I'm going in. Cheers. So, I'm, I'm, what, what would you? Uh, what am I? What am I looking for here? What, what is? What is pronounced? Um, so, I think that originally there is this, like, very soft, almost uh, like river stone or polished stone kind of minerality and mouthfeel. It like holds itself together in a very viscous way. A lot of high proof bourbons get, uh, like, perky or like they they hurt parts of your your palate because they're harsh and this one doesn't no yet it still has the flavor power of something that's at 115 proof um I was, that's a that's the perfect way to say it like it's 115 but it doesn't burn you down but it's still a whiskey it's it's it's, it's there's nothing soft about it it's just balanced in how it's put together um and what i find most intriguing about it flavor-wise is bourbon has vanilla flavor in it no matter what because of the oak, the American oak. Uh, But to me, this very much has the like fresh vanilla bean, the like really good vanilla ice cream kind of flavor Mm -hmm. um, rather than that sort of vanilla extracty flavor that you get in some some bourbon. Similarly, uh, I get a very like... uh, like orchids or like white flower or like, um, if it's you ever not had, an over sugared vanilla. No, no. Um, and there's this like beautiful light floral quality to it, like almost lacy floral quality mm-hmm. that I really love. And the, then the finish is just spectacular. 
I also really like that for a minute, you do get a bit of a bite on the finish, but there's a sweetness level that carries right. through. And so you're, not, say. you're yeah. not left with heat. You're actually left with a really clean palate, uh, which is to me like the mark of, of structurally balanced spirits where the, the sugar and tannin and, and alcohol are balanced well. Uh, but it also makes for a very dangerous spirit because it <laughs> doesn't leave you being like, whew, it leaves you being like, oh, cool, I'll take another sip. More, yeah, um, yeah. It, it, it definitely, it's a full-bodied, I, I, I think the finish is, the, the palate's delicious, don't get me wrong. The palate plays into the finish. But I absolutely love how it sits with you afterwards. Like, it, it, it just, every, it, the burn and the palate work hand in hand together. Like they're not a, uh, they're not fighting one another, nor do they tell different stories. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes it can be smooth on the palate and then hard on the finish. And you're kind of like, well, what's going on? Why, why aren't they holding hands? So to speak, mm -hmm. this guy, he is, he freaking knows who he is. And you're right. You immediately want more. And that one fifty. I've got it sitting here in front of me so that I can just, it's one fifteen. Mm -hmm. pace yourself. <laughs> it's delicious. Um, so if you're ready to move on, I think we should do Armida next. Mm -hmm. uh, where is my Armida? I've been very, uh, I've been looking forward to Armida. Um, so Armida uh, is, uh, it's named after Joe's mother who okay. didn't go by Armida, but her real sort of Italian name was Armida. Um, and the impetus for that was uh, the pear brandy finish was inspired by Joe's sort of love of orchards in the Northeast. Okay. Um, a little bit because his family, he didn't grow up on it, but his family had a farm in Massachusetts and, uh, he like had a lot of good memories there. And so it, the project didn't have a name for like six months. We had the whiskey before we had the name. And finally, uh, Joe decided to name it after not what inspired the whiskey, but what sort of inspired his love for some of the flavors that went into the whiskey. Okay. So tell um, me about that. What, what, what all goes into this whiskey? So this, the Armida is one of three whiskeys we make, two that are released and one that I can talk about, but isn't released yet that are, I call them Rubik's cubes blends because they are three ingredients and they have three different finishes on them. Um, so all three of the ingredients for Armida are start as bourbon. So it's all of the base whiskey was bourbon, but then it was finished separately in pear brandy casks and rum casks and uh, Sicilian Amaro casks. Okay. Okay. That um, makes the nose make a lot more sense. Uh, and so I find that the, the, the pear brandy is so floral. You get pear on the nose completely. Very much uh, so. The idea behind Armida was, let's take the flavor points in bourbon that are fleeting, that a really good bourbon will, will flash at you for a second, but you won't actually get as a driving thing. And let's flip it on its head and let's make them really powerful. And so the like orchard fruit note and the spice note, which is what we were moving, like working with Sicilian Amara for, and that like funky dirty, like toasty, molasses-y note from, from yeah. rum. Yeah. Uh, and so we wanted to start, we want the nose and the front palate to be a huge hit of that, but we want the 
mid palate and then moving into the finish, what, what we call the cadence, which is like when the palate ends and the finish starts, mm-hmm. we want it to drift back into a bourbon. So we want it to end like a bourbon, even though it started like a bourbon turned on its head. Okay. And, and now you seem like the person to ask about this. For people that are tasting at home and people that are trying to do this the right way, uh, when you're tasting a whiskey for the first time, what, what would you recommend in terms of how you, how, you, how you start, how you finish? Like, do you swirl the glass? Do you not swirl the glass? Um, so I was taught very harshly in Scotland to not swirl the glass with whiskey. Oh, okay. uh, because you're volatizing the alcohol more than anything else. Okay. But, uh, that was six years ago and I started in the wine industry and I, though I'll drink whiskey out of any glass prefer. And I know that we're, we're not recording video, right? We're recording audio. We're recording We've video. Got both. We've got but both. if people are listening, but not watching, I'm drinking this out of a stemmed cordials glass. And, uh, I figured your wine background was for the was the reason for that. I just feel more comfortable not having my hand close to my face when I'm tasting, and so I I really oh, like stem glasses. But that's just me. That's not what I think everyone else should do. No, um, no, that's super interesting. Uh, but uh, the first, so I I swirl it because I'm so used to holding the stem glass. That's why I do it, and I I used to try not to, and I just got it's going to happen. Um, right, right. It's muscle memory for me. Uh, what I do think is really important is you don't have to spend a lot of time smelling a whiskey, especially if you're with other people, but you want to set the stage for yourself, for your palate by smelling something first, because your nose is so much more discerning than, than your mouth is. Right. Um, and so whiskeys that don't match palate and nose are really interesting because you smell one thing and you taste something else and you lose that if you don't smell it first. But also when something's really intriguing smelling, you set yourself up to enjoy the palate and oh. something has a really good nose. You're just, you're in a better mind frame to like, it's, to enjoy it. It's uh, sending something to the brain. I mean, it's the, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> we're, we're having to homeschool right now, of course, cause we're in the middle of all this. And one of the things, uh, the, my five-year-old just learned, uh, uh she, she's being taught that, your the senses just you know she's five you're learning the senses and that the your smell receptor that is a thing that has traditionally taught us danger so to your point it's 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 like years and years of evolution of the of the of the smeller and and now you're you're it's the opposite of that we're no longer it's not danger this is bad it's like oh this is good and now your brain Mm -hmm. triggers just the same just the opposite way um so I most rudimentary. <laughs> yeah. With, uh, with hard liquor, with distilled spirits, I like to have a first sip that's really small mm-hmm. and hold it on my tongue for a second. So I can kind of see what happens as it falls apart on the palate. Um, because I think the experience of having a little bit and the experience of having a mouthful are very different and it's hard right. to, it's hard to do the little bit experience after having a mouthful because your palate gets pretty burned out. And so yeah, you've already immersed it. Um, but beyond that, I get the question a lot about how to taste and it really depends what you're trying to get out of it. Because when we do a new release or when someone I know in the industry does a release, I try to sit down with it in a really analytical way. Right. But I don't, I enjoy that intellectually, but I don't, it's not relaxing for me. It's a lot of work. work. And, uh, and so there is a beauty in the products that are easy to enjoy as well. 
Um, what I think uh, Armida and Dovetail do especially well is if you want to get into it, there's a lot to get into. There's, there's three different finishes on both, and they are very specific finishes made in very specific ways. There are high-proof whiskeys that have a lot going on and change a lot from the nose to the front palate to the mid palate to the finish. But also, they're pretty just like enjoy, so you don't need to do that. There's some other whiskeys that I love, but I don't see myself polishing off a lot by accident if I'm not thinking about. It's more like I, I want to know what's going on with it specifically. Um, and so I, I try not to be too didactic about tasting because it, I feel like you're ruining what is great about certain whiskeys if you are forgetting that you should just enjoy them sometimes. Well said. The, the Armada is amazing, by the way. Oh, thank you. I mean, it is, it's complex and it is still absolutely delicious. Like uh, your, your brain's not overworking itself to figure out what's in there, but n- nor is it like uh, boring. Like it's still got a lot going on and you're figuring out things while you're enjoying them. Thank you. Yeah, we, uh, we love it and it's been received really well. Um, no, we is that on the show right now? It's on the shelf right now. We just now are at the point where we're, it's not allocated anymore. Well, oh, it's, wow. pretty, it's pretty readily available. So the first six months, it was released in October or so, but we were very careful about how much we were letting out at first. And now we're pretty confident that we have enough stock to let the floodgates open a little bit. It's delicious. It is. I mean, the 27 is good. Uh, uh, so far, though, Ar- Armada is, is my favorite of the two. Cool. Uh, you ready to move on to Dovetail? Yeah, let's do some Dovetail. Now, now Dovetail, this one is, explain this one a little bit because this guy goes all over the place, doesn't he? Uh, like so he yeah. what, what, his classification goes all over the place, I should say. So Dovetail, uh, it's, it's an American whiskey. Um, it's a blend of three ingredients like Armida, except unlike Armida, that all three ingredients started as bourbon, two ingredients started as bourbon, and one started as whiskey. So the, the okay. base of Dovetail is an Indiana whiskey. So it was aged in used barrels uh, that was then finished in Dunn Cabernet cask or Dunn Cabernet barrels. Um, Dunn is one of the, I don't know, six or seven OG respect Napa cab producers. They sit on the top of Howell Mountain in like the northeastern part of Napa. They're still family owned. Like when we talked to Dunn, we talked to Mike Dunn. Um, They only make two wines. They make one like property only Howell Mountain designate 100% Cabernet and they make one Napa Valley Cabernet and that's it. Um, And uh, we have this amazing working relationship with them where like it's two family owned companies and when Mike Dunn wants whiskey for himself or to give away, he emails us and when we need empty barrels, we email him and that's it. That's Don't the, you love those relationships? It's, uh, I wish the world worked that way. It doesn't, but I wish it did. Me, me too. If, if we could go back, uh, if we could keep the technology but go back maybe 100 years in terms of how business was done before everybody started uh, yeah. digging down too deep. Um, and so what's wonderful about the Dunn finish is, first of all, that wine quality is so great and the sort of acid and tannin balance there, but also that those barrels are like the finest French oak barrels. And so there's, there's a Cabernet finish, but it's also a French oak finish. Um, that being said, the Indiana whiskey is 
hot and uh, Cabernet is a pretty grippy wine. Uh-huh. And so it's a very abrasive whiskey that comes out of those barrels. And so we developed two other ingredients, which were both bourbon finished separately and blackstrap molasses rum casks and late bottled vintage port pipes. And they are inky, sweet whiskeys that are out of balance, but work as ingredients to tone down and tease out those characteristics of the done finish. Um, and so uh, Dovetail was actually the inspiration for Armida because it was make three things not to have them be good, but to have them work well together and then make a blend right. out of them. And that has become a, a like roadmap for us a little bit with our production. Um, we have another whiskey that is getting released in a month or so called Seagrass, which is a blend of Canadian rye and Indiana rye finished three different ways in mm. uh, apricot brandy barrels, Malmsey Madeira barrels, and Martinique rum casks. Um, wow. So it's another sort of three finishes on three different whiskeys. Uh, that sounds amazing. Um, I'll have to come back. Yes, please. Dude, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Oh, yeah. Yes, indeed. So what I think is interesting about Dovetail in comparison to Armida, first of all, the flavor profiles are totally different because the finishes are different. But whereas Armida starts off almost unrecognizable to bourbon and then it becomes closer and closer to bourbon until the end where it finishes like you just had a sip of bourbon. Dovetail to me, the mouthfeel at the beginning is full and round and assertive like a bourbon, but Uh because there's less oak tannin, it actually drifts further away from bourbon as it sort of develops on your palate. And so the finish of Dovetail to me is like, that was a whiskey, but it was really unlike any other whiskey I've ever had. Yeah, and the first thing the, the first thing I got was just um, a hint of sweet on the front of the tongue, uh, and then it sort of works the room a little bit, and and spreads itself out, and the flavors just go all over the place, but in a good way. It's complex. There there is definitely a, a a level of intensity to this that the other two don't quite have. Is this your favorite? Which would be your favorite if you picked out of the three? Um, that's a really hard question for me yeah, because, first of all, it's like a, it's a, you know, they're all your ch- children. You have to love them mm-hmm. e- equally situation. And that uh, so often the new shiny thing is the favorite because I'm talking about it. And just, but I, I actually right. feel like my answer to that question should always be and is always dovetail because yeah. I think that dovetail as a single whiskey embodies what barrel is within the industry better than anything else we make that it is not unfamiliar when you're tasting it but the amount of work that went into getting it the way that it is is on a different level than almost anyone else in the industry and it and because of that the the sort of informational depth of the whiskey and the identity of it are are really unique and so i just like now that Dovetail has been around for a few years and people know the name Dovetail as a whiskey and right. gets called for by name, it's our top selling item now. Uh, oh, is it? Yeah, it's not more than any one batch of bourbon, but Dovetail, we make more Dovetail every year than we do any one batch of bourbon. So I got you. Bourbon is still our top seller if you add the batches together. But right. uh, Man, I, it- I just am really proud of Dovetail as a like start to finish developing and re- releasing and launching and continuing to make the whiskey it's very good i I, i've been sitting here uh just letting the finish sort of 
keep going. And you even get notes from Armada in the finish, but only like that little bit of sweetness, like like that that hint of uh, like almost butterscotch, mm-hmm. but but very faintly, like like yeah. it, it, it is inner. It, it, works together with the uh that bourbon that end of it is so it's a whiskey man i mean like it is what you want when you go to and the reason i thought it was going to be your favorite is is it's got a heft to it but it's not boring like like Mm -hmm. for and you're someone who drinks this just as much as i do like you're you're in the trenches doing it more than me like you're you're looking at it so I feel to impress you, it would have to be interesting, but still yeah. be enjoyable I, it's hard when in you terms say, of relaxing. When you say favorite, it's really hard to pick one. I guess the reason I, I have to rest on Dovetail when people ask my favorite is just because of uh, it was the first of this series of releases with the three finishes, and it... it, uh, it it's very good. I'm I'm just really proud of the the way that it was developed and the way that it exists right now. And so it's no, totally. And and again, uh, my favorite changes by the day. It, it, your favorite changes based on your mood. You know, mm-hmm. one that we've tasted. I could see one being a Monday, one being a Tuesday, one being a Wednesday. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're all three phenomenal, and. Uh, we, we alluded to it earlier. Do we have a shared friend from your previous uh, job at the distillery? I think we might. Uh, we might. The reason that I alluded to it is because in the prep that you gave me for this interview, the last question was, who would be on your Mount Rushmore of distillers? Yes. And almost everything else in the packet that you sent, I felt like I don't really need to prepare for this. I'm just going to answer the question the way that I would normally. But uh Distillers are interesting because the people actually doing the work don't often get the recognition. Agreed. Um, and so I, I actually put a little bit of thought into that. And so I know I have to go in a couple minutes, but I, I have a real answer for you. Yes, uh, please. And it is an answer based on not what would be Mount Rushmore founding fathers, but like the people that have been most influential to what I think is impressive in the whiskey industry right now. Uh, and so the first is uh, a woman named Martine Lafitte, who okay. uh, is the distiller and owner of a Armagnac producer called Domaine Boignier. Uh, just because it's probably my favorite Armagnac producer and that it is, uh, the brandy world is just, their ability to continue to reach into history is so impressive and like, they do vintage, they do cask strength. They're, I believe they're biodynamic. They grow their own grapes. It's like, uh, I don't think that what they do is a model for anyone else, but I just, as a complete producer, they're probably my favorite in the brandy world. Uh, the second is a man named Russell Anderson, who was the distillery manager at McAllen in the, I believe, early 2000s. Right. He worked at Highland Park in the late 90s, and he was never part of any branding. But uh, in my career, McAllen is the damn Yankees. That like, I know they weren't forever, but it, it, you, you hate them because they're so successful. They raise prices and no one can do anything about it. But also the whiskey is just delicious. Right. And, right. Uh, and I think that like, 
at, in the time right before I started noticing it, he was the person calling the shots. And so I respect him on that. Uh, there's a man named Isoji Akuto, who was uh, the distiller at the distillery in Japan who did all of the different card releases that his son Ichiro, I think it's his son Ichiro, released and now does Chichibu, but he was the impetus for it in like the 40s and 50s. Um, and so I think like the Japanese whiskey boom is sort of was set off by his work in the middle of the century. Uh, right. And then finally, the guy that hired me, whose name is Colin Spullman, who is the owner of Kings County Distillery in New York. Uh, and first of all, because it, it, at the end of the day, I sort of owe my whiskey career to him saying yes to a ridiculous letter. Um, but also, <laughs> uh, this flip happened in the whiskey world in America a couple of years ago, where it used to be that the major brands were dragging the craft brands in their wake. And right. now I feel that the good craft brands are dragging innovation from the major brands in their, in their wake. And completely agree. Uh, Colin was at the forefront of, of craft brands, but also he's one of the only people I know that was in production and also was like a writer and is a nice guy and uh, is, is well-respected in the industry for being like helpful and easy to talk to, but also his brand is really strong. The branding is good. The whiskey is good. Uh, and I, you know, I got to put him on cause he was the person who gave me the job. So those would be my four for the Mount Rushmore. Well, and just a wonderful person too to introduce you to the whiskey world, because I always think of the whiskey industry, the bourbon industry as this inviting place where everybody's real and everybody's got the bottom line of what tastes good at the forefront of their, of their business model. And, and, uh, and, uh, to Joe's credit, I think like as soon as Joe realized that I knew Colin. Joe said, uh, let's, no, but also he said, let's work with them. And, and there's Kings County in the new year bourbon every year. Really? Um, and so, uh, the new year bourbon is so, the one I was talking about at the beginning, the one where a buddy uh, brought it over and it was like, "Woo, this is good. Yeah. So we work with a couple of distilleries in New York, but Kings County distillery was the first distillery in New York that we worked with. That's awesome. Yeah, man. I, I, okay. So I know we're out of time. Um, I've been gone from New York for for four and a half years. How southern do I sound to you? You do not sound southern to me at all. But uh, no? you, but I'm I'm looking at you, and you seem a little bit too happy to be a New Yorker now. And so, <laughs> dude, I have been having such a good time doing this. I I, I when comedy um, went the way of COVID, the same as you, I, I can't go talk to people unless it's like a group of 25 and a Zoom. I'm actually doing a Zoom show out of Dumbo. Uh, uh, the, the main source is Dumbo in a couple weeks. So, um, but Zoom is just not the same. I, 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 like right now, I would rather me and you be in a room drinking whiskey than mm -hmm. being on a Zoom drinking whiskey. But at the same time, I've had such a good time talking with everybody that I've talked to about this whole thing, this whole industry, this whole production, that that's why I'm always happy. Like, it's very hard yeah. <laughs> uh, to not enjoy. Um, I was talking to Wes Henderson recently, and he's like, if you're doing this and you can't be having fun while you do it, then you're in the wrong industry, man. And, and I completely yeah. agree. It, it's with comedy. I love comedy. It's always going to be my first love. But you are on the road 95% of the job and 5% of the job is the job. 
You, you, you know what right. I mean? So the payoff <laughs> is that hour 15 that you get with complete strangers where this right here, it's just, in, it's enjoyable to hear how you got your start and, and how you found this place. It sounds like you and Beryl, uh, it, it's just the perfect fit and that you've really rounded out the cast and helped them push this thing forward. Yeah, it's, very, it's nice of you to say that, but uh, I, I think that's giving me a little bit too much credit. I feel like I'm the person holding on to the back of the barrel car, just like every day trying to make sure that I can continue to do the job that I'm asked to do. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty young for my job. And um, You are, but your palate's I, obviously I, refined I, as is your pedigree from the past 10 years of your uh, work experience. Yeah, and I also just think like uh, I my career exists because of not only Joe's vision for the brand and him and Nick and Tripp's ability to execute whiskeys, but also Joe's insistence on not doing things the way that, that other people were doing them. And so, you know, he hires people that will fill the role for his company the way that he wants it filled, not the person who's done it for a gigantic company before. Right. And and I am the benefactor of that. Well, he picked you because you knew how to help him do what he was trying to do. He created an A team. I I, I it, it's it's an honor to hear you say that. But uh, I guess every day for me is just trying to like live up to that a little bit, you know. Well, I'm sort of standing back, looking in, and and how you described how the team was put together. It looks like every you could almost take it back to his previous company, the Blue Dingo. Uh, if his job was to help companies integrate themselves into that pre-internet, or not pre, but that internet boom where a lot of people found themselves like in the dark, he's always had that mm -hmm. forward mind where he's able to see where the puck's going more so than where the puck is. He mm -hmm. did that with the blends and he did that with this business. And I think when he brought on this team that he's created, he was just doing it again and putting people where they needed to be to help him get where he needed to go. And also I'm a hockey fan. So I, I like the metaphor. Hey, yeah. Who's your team? I'm a Rangers fan. Yep. Ah, okay. Uh, I moved to New York and uh, uh, the hurricanes, I did not know one of my first real New York uh, learning moments was I didn't know you couldn't pull for another team in Madison Square Garden. Yeah, it's a bad, bad move. Range, oh, that whistle went through. Uh, Rangers versus Hurricanes. Now, you're also not going to like this. My first Major League Baseball game was at, uh, Reds, was at the Red Sox. It was in uh, Fenway. So coming from North Carolina, you had the Braves forced on you your entire mm -hmm. life. So I was never even a baseball fan. It didn't interest me at all. My girlfriend then, wife now, she takes me to a, uh, uh, a game in Fenway, immediately hooked on the Red Sox, and then moved to New York like a year later. So uh, I've, I've had things thrown at me for every major sports team that I've ever liked just because I lived in New mm -hmm. York and seemed to cheer for the competitor. Uh, but yeah, I've had bottles thrown at me at, at Madison Square Garden just for going go Hurricanes once. Well, I uh, I hope in not too long I'll be able to go back, but who knows when? When it's safe. Yeah. Well, it has been an absolute delight. I've taken up a lot of your time. I appreciate you giving me this much time. Oh, of I've, course. I've, Thank you so much for being a, a a great person to talk to, and also breaking out my afternoon for me. <laughs> well, I. I that's what I'm here for, Will. I'm, yeah. here, I'm here to give. I'm here to. I'm here to give back. I wish so. I every day could just take uh, you know an hour and a half off and chat about the job and whiskey for a bit. It would. Uh, <laughs> it would certainly make my my 
moment to moment a lot brighter. So thank you. Well, if you'll let me, I'll bring you back and we'll do this again. For because, sure. Uh, I, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed breaking down how you guys do what you do. You're very knowledgeable about what you do. And it's just a, it's always a treat for me to talk to people that have like that passion in them to, to really get to the bottom of what it is that you're producing. So thank you for being on. Thank you so much. There you have it, guys. There's today's episode. We want to thank William Schragas from Barrel Bourbon for being on the show. It was so fun talking to him and tasting through some of the awesomeness that they are producing right now. I swear the Armida is its so good. I, I, I can't get enough of it. I know that that pear brandy cask might scare a few people, but just go with it, man. Bourbon doesn't have to be hard. Let your flavor palette take you where it wants to go. And sometimes it's going to take you somewhere awesome, which I think is the case with the Armida. It is so good, and the dovetail is so good, and, and Jesus, the 27 is so good. Everything. The thing about a blend and the thing about a measured hand when it comes to a blend is that you're going to get if it's good, something amazing. And I think they have the balanced hand at barrel to make amazing things. And so I want to thank Will for being on the show. It was great talking to him. It was great getting to relive some of my New York days through him. And I just thank him for being on the show. It was one of those episodes where I could have kept going. Uh, I think we'll definitely have to do this again because I enjoyed talking to him. So thank you, Will, for being on. It was a great episode, and I, I appreciate your time. Uh, tune in next week, you guys, as we have Spirits of French Lick on the program. And let me tell you, those guys are batshit crazy, and I love it. Can I tell you that? I love it. They are the kind of guests that I absolutely love. Uh, the same way me and Will hit it off, me and the Spirits of French Lick guys just... Alan and Jolie, we just freaking roll, man. There isn't one thing we don't talk about. You like mushrooms? Well, we cover that. You like uh, chili? <laughs> you like chili cheeseburgers? I think we cover that. It's everything. So come back next week for Spirits of French Lick. We want to thank Will from Barrel for being on today. We want to thank everybody for listening. Go find us on uh, YouTube. Go find us on Apple Podcasts. Go find us on Spotify, Instagram, all the things. We want to thank all of you for tuning in each week. It's a pleasure putting out this for you. And just keep drinking, you guys. Raise your glasses. Kick some asses. My name's Jesse Jones. This is the Bourbon Showdown Podcast. We want to thank all of you for continuing to tune in, and we'll see you next week. All right, everybody. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.